0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Mmm, real good, I can tell. Okay, stormy outside. It's COVID inside. It's great. Well, my name's Carl. I am one of the staff members here at the Parkway Church. Glad you're here with us. I am eager to be here with you. I'm looking forward to looking at this text together. Uh, before we jump into the scripture, I do want to share just a quick story. Um, at my previous job, uh, I was a minister at another church with similar responsibilities to the ones I have now. So primarily being centered around kids, ministry to kids, in particular, preschoolers. And so uh, we had a lot of preschoolers at this church. Therefore, we had a lot of classrooms at this church with a lot of volunteers in those classrooms serving and teaching and loving with those kids on any given weekend. So my job typically was kind of roam the hallways looking for problems to help solve. A kid with a discipline issue, a kid with an anxiety issue, a volunteer who's freaking out because they don't know what to do, these kinds of things, right? So I'm doing that one Sunday, and I'm walking around the corner, and I come around past this classroom that is loaded with literally the best volunteers that I have. These people are rock stars. They've all been serving at least a decade apiece. They know the policies. They know the procedures. They understand how to do everything. They are excellent. This room of any of my rooms, I would never, ever need to help them, Now, one of the primary policies that we had at that church and that we also have at Parkway is centered around the safety and the security of the kids. We want the kids to be safe when they're with us, and we want them to be secure, meaning that they get released to the correct people, right? And the easiest way to accomplish that is this policy we have called no sticker, no kid. It's pretty simple. If you don't have the little security sticker that matches your kid, you can't have your kid until you come and talk to me. That's the way that works. Now these volunteers, they understood that incredibly well. They never need my help with this. But when I come around the corner, I see this father standing in the doorway, and I look over at the volunteer who's facing him, and she has this look of fear and anxiety and terror on her face, and she goes, And I said, whoa, hey, are you okay? Clearly something's wrong. And I look at this father and he's kind of a big guy with lots of muscles and a chiseled jaw. And I think, well, is she intimidated by him? What's happening? Well, it doesn't matter, I'm gonna help. Hey, what's going on? She goes, um, he, uh, he, he doesn't have his sticker. And I thought, well, that's weird. You've done this a thousand times. This happens literally dozens of times every Sunday. Why would you be anxious about this? Doesn't matter, I'm gonna help her. Hey dad, what's going on, you don't have your sticker? Oh no man, I don't have it, I I, I guess my wife has it, she's back in the sanctuary, I mean maybe she's got it stuck on her leg or something, I'm like, okay, that's cool. At this point we have two options, option one, you go back in there, find your wife, get the sticker, then you come back and you get your kid. Option two, you show me a photo ID, I can verify who you are and then I can release your kid to you. And this dad looks at me and he goes, are you serious? And I said, yes? And he goes, well, all right. So he pulls out his wallet, takes out his ID, and hands it to me. And I walk around the corner, and I go to my computer, and I'm going to type his name in. I look at the license. Tony Romo. <laughs> I recognize that name. That's the Cowboys guy. That's the, uh, the quarterback, right? That's the guy who throws the ball. Oh, that's why she was so anxious. That's why she's nervous, of course. Now, In my defense, I did not recognize him for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, I don't care about sports. I don't watch sports. I don't keep up with that stuff. I only know his name because all the other men that I know care about that stuff. Reason number two, he did not look or act like he usually looks and acts. He did not have his jersey on. He did not have his helmet on. He was not throwing interceptions. Now listen, somebody else fed me that joke. I didn't know that he did that nor did I know that it would upset you so bad. <laughs> hmm. Moving on. Now, ultimately, I was able to verify who he was, give him his kid, everything was great. Now, the reason I tell you that story is because regardless of his reputation, how famous he is or isn't with different groups of people, right? at the end of the day, he needed some sort of credential. Somebody else needed to vouch for him before I was going to give him the, the, uh, the blessings of releasing a child to him. The things he wanted, the things that he needed weren't going to happen until he got someone else to vouch for him. In this case, it was the state, right, issuing him this this kind of state-issued driver's license. And in a similar way, 3 John, this book that we're going to kind of embark upon today, is a letter being written for the purpose of presenting some credentials to someone else. And so we'll see that as we kind of get into this a little bit. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the text. Father. We love you. We thank you that you love us. We pray that you will be near to us, encourage us, strengthen us this morning. If any of us have come into this room with anxiety or fear or distraction, Lord, we pray that you'll help us. Help us to not be anxious, to not be fearful, but to trust you. We pray that you'll help us to be attentive to your word this morning, that as we study your text that you've given to us for this morning, that we will be encouraged and reminded of your love and your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. We're grateful for the truth of your word. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of this. Amen. Okay, so let's quickly kind of do just a, like a, an overview of what it is we're getting into, right? The book of 3 John. So who wrote this book? The guy who wrote it just claims one title, the elder. That's all he says. Now we know, based on scholarly work, that this is the Apostle John who authored the Gospel of John, who also authored First and Second John that we just finished studying. So it's written by the Apostle John. Uh, John And who's it written to? It's written to a man named Gaius. And what's the purpose? So a letter from John to Gaius. Why? Primarily so that John can introduce to Gaius a man named Demetrius. He's basically giving credentials for Demetrius. He's vouching for Demetrius. Demetrius is likely going to see Gaius with like a bundle of letters. One of them may have even been Second John which John also wrote for the purposes of reading to the church. Now, some interesting facts about 3 John. It kind of ties with 2 John as being the shortest book of the Bible. Second and Third John are almost identical in length. They're about 300 words. Okay? 2 John, if you look in the ESV translation, has 299 words. Third John has 303. So they're real short. Right? And because they're so short, just like with 2 John, Third John, we won't be talking about chapters. As we work through this text, we'll never say chapter one. There are no chapters. When we talk about the numbers, we're going to talk about the verses. All right, so 3 John 3 is the third verse of 3 John, okay? Now, these first four verses that we're going to look at this morning are the kind of passage that we might eh, skip when we're reading. Right, we might get to, the, get to this text and look at this intro and kind of think to ourselves, eh, it's just a guy introducing another guy He's saying, hey, buddy, how's it going? I'm going to skip this. There's no meat here. I'm going to jump on down to verse 5 where the good stuff is. Right, We might be inclined to treat this kind of like the, the intro to your favorite Netflix show. Right, You start the new show, the intro music starts playing, and you're like, whatever, I don't care who wrote the show, I don't care who delicted it, oh, 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 looky there, a skip intro button, click, nice, right? You might treat it like that, or like your favorite podcast, when they get to an ad, you're like, I know this podcast does, 60 seconds worth of ads, I'm gonna hit that 30 second skip button, boop, boop, <laughs> not today, Helix Sleep Mattress, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, now I'm a compulsive shopper with too many mattresses. So, verses like these are not to be skipped. They are to be read. They are to be considered. Every word of the Scriptures is, is valuable. Every word of the Scriptures is necessary. The Scriptures testify to this themselves. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 reads, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we are going to be looking at these first four verses and considering both kind of the obvious kind of surface level meaning, as well as trying to dig just a little deeper for what these words help us to see and understand about both of the authors of this book, the human author, John, and the divine author. So let's get into it. Verse 1, the elder To the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So he starts by calling himself the elder. Is he just saying, hey, there's this old guy writing you a letter? Or is he saying, I am the office of elder in the church? Well, we already kind of covered this back when we started 2 John. Uh, We see that indeed, John is an apostle, kind of a capital A apostle. And along with apostleship comes eldership. So he is indeed claiming this office in the church of elder. But he was also going, at that time, going to be kind of an older guy with some wisdom, so it kind of has both of those meanings. But at the end of the day, Gaius, the recipient of the letter, he's expected to know. Right? The idea is Gaius knows who's writing to him, the expectation is that he knows who this is and what he's about. So it says, The elder to the beloved Gaius. First thing here is how we can see that this book is different in its intent, and then Second John, right? Second John was written with the intent of being read to the church. It's intended by its human author to be for a larger audience. Second John uh, verse one reads the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And if you remember when we studied this a, a few weeks back, the elect lady is the church, the children are the members of that church, right? And so the idea is that Second John was being written to a group, Third John is being written to an individual. So it's not a letter to a group, it's not like one of those To Whom It May Concern letters, right? It's a personal letter. You might have gotten a To Whom It May Concern letter, you open that bad boy up, To Whom It May Concern, trash. They're not writing to me, they don't care, I don't care, I'm not not reading this. Or you may have written a To Whom It May Concern letter, right? You got some marshmallow mateys at the grocery store, you thought these are probably just as good as Lucky Charms? Nope, they're awful. And you want your money back, and so To Whom It May Concern, these? cereals, and these bags are terrible. I want my money back, right? That's not a personal letter. That's a to whom I'm making certain. So it's not that kind of letter uh, that we're dealing with here. It's not like the cover sheet of a TPS report, right? This is a personal letter. So the NIV translate this word that we see here as beloved translates it as my dear friend, which can help us kind of see kind of what we're dealing with. And while it is written to the individual, it is written to Gaius, it is still for the church right because it's scripture. We should not look at a letter like this one or Philemon or Titus and think that somehow they're less valuable because they're not written for the church. Right? Even though John's intent is to write a letter to an individual, God intends for this to be for the church because it's in his word. So this guy Gaius, who is this? Well, we don't know. We don't know exactly who Gaius is. We only know what we know from this text about him, we don't really know who he is. There are other mentions of this name in the New Testament. We see this name get mentioned in Acts, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, but there's no way to know for certain whether this uh, Gaius is is one of those Gaiuses, right? Gaius is kind of a a common name at the time, like George, right, think of like George Foreman, who was a professional heavyweight boxer. Again, sports references, my favorite, because I know lots and lots about sports, which is not true. So, George Foreman. This guy has five sons. You know what he named his five sons? George. All five of them are George Foreman. They're not just George Foreman, they're all George Edward Foreman. They all have the same middle name, which is bananas, and also probably real easy to call kids for dinner. So, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So he he uses this same phrase here that he used in the opening of 2 John. Again, if we look at that first verse of 2 John, it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. So Zach talked about this when we started preaching through 2 John back in the middle of May. Why does John say this? Why does he say, whom I love in truth? Why does he just say, whom I love? Throughout these epistles, throughout John's writings, John is really concerned with truth and with love. And when John uses this word truth, he doesn't just mean what you and I might think, the opposite of a lie, right? Something consistent with reality, something that's true. He's thinking in more theological terms. He's thinking about three things that Zach mentioned, and I'll mention them again because I think they bear repeating. The first is holding to sound doctrine, holding to true things about God and the way he's ordered the world to be. The second is believing in the gospel, believing in the gospel of the kingdom, believing on Jesus Christ. And the last is the indwelling of the Spirit, which then allows you to walk by the Spirit, to walk in this truth. And all three of these are what John means when he uses this word truth. So indeed, there kind of is this reality that truth and love are somehow inexplicably connected. They are are tied up together. You cannot truly love apart from the truth. And the truth is always loving, even if it doesn't feel that way to us. So when we look at this phrase, whom I love in truth, at the beginning of 2 John and here again in 3 John, we might tend to translate that in our heads. Oh, he just means whom I truly love. But it's more than that. The truth is always good. The truth is always loving. To genuinely love is to hold to the truth. And when we misunderstand the truth or if we disregard truth, then our love is going to be disordered and it's going to be misplaced. Our culture... uh, tend to kind of play truth and love against one another. Because the truth is often not what we want to hear. The tendency is that if you say something to me that I don't like, hurts my feelings, right, if you just disagree with me, then our culture says you aren't being loving. And the inverse, they would say, is true as well. If you say things I do like that make me feel good, if you just agree with me, well then that's loving. And so if we perceive a certain truth and we don't like it, Well, then it's going to affect our emotional response. It's going to affect the way that we behave. Let me explain it like this, with a French horn anecdote. Mm -hmm. That's right. You guys have been clamoring for these. I get all kinds of emails and texts and Facebook messenger stuff. Carl, man, when are you preaching again? When are we going to hear more of these riveting, edge of your seat, French horn stories about how you used to be an orchestral musician back before you were in ministry? Well, I'm here. Today's the day. Here it comes, are you ready? I met this guy. I met him once, I had one conversation with him. We were introduced because we shared a similar story in that we had both studied music, we would both studied the French horn, wanted to play it for a living, wanted that to be our career, and then we both took a turn and did something different. But his story was fascinating to me, and I wanna share it because I think it bears on what we're trying to understand here this morning. This guy went to a small college. He had like 10 or 12 colleagues, classmates, that he played with and studied with. They had this great French horn teacher that they studied with. And as much as he worked and as much as he practiced, he could never get as good as the other guys. Every time he felt like he was getting good, the other players would get better. He thought, I can't keep up with all these people. In this little bitty college, in this little bitty town, I can't keep up with these 10 people? Well, I probably shouldn't be doing this. I I should do something else, and he did. He changed his career path. He did something completely different. He didn't play French horn, and then a couple decades later, he finds out that all of his classmates are literally the best French horn players that have ever existed, right? One of them was the, the best horn player in the New York Philharmonic for like 30 years. And I can see on your faces that you already know who I'm talking about. You're ready. Let's just say his name together on the count of three. One, two, three. Gunter Wassenheim von Schlurkenbergen. No. That's not, that's not really it. That's not his name. His name is Phil Myers. He was excellent. But this was a classmate of his. And the point that I want you to see is not, ooh, watch out. You might fool yourself and make some bad career move. No, no, no. I want you to see that the truth is always what's best. He did not understand the truth of his circumstances, and it affected how he felt, and it affected what he did, because he did not hold to or believe or understand the truth. Is that his fault that he didn't realize these guys were the greatest? No. But you get the point. The point is, the truth is what's always best. And some of you will hear this idea, and you'll take it and you'll want to use it as an excuse to take something you believe to be true and beat people over the head with it. So when we take communion a little bit, you might be tempted to judge someone who takes the wine instead of the juice. Or you might be tempted to do the, the opposite and judge someone who takes the juice instead of the wine. You might try to share the gospel with a stranger, but then you would elevate the law over grace. And then you have this shallow convert who ends up falling away from the faith because they couldn't measure up. Or you might even just leave the church because you don't like the way worship is done. Or you don't like the fact that a particular ministry exists. Or you don't like something that the preacher said. Well listen, Zach says stuff I don't like all the time. And I'm still here. Others of you will hear this and you'll think, oh, well then I can just, I can never say what's true because it's offensive and hurts people's feelings. It's unloving to offend, but the truth is offensive. The gospel is offensive. It's not that we should avoid giving offense completely, but rather we should avoid giving intentional offense. I should not intend to harm you or hurt you with my speech, but at uh, the same time, I can't sugarcoat or water down the truth of God's word. The Bible talks of itself this way in Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The truth is offensive. The truth isn't always pleasant. The truth sometimes is painful. But it is always what's best, and it is always what's loving. So getting back to John's words here in verse 1, when he says to Gaius, whom I love in truth, he's saying more than just, I have this personal affection or a relationship potentially with this guy. He's talking about a love that is rooted in an understanding of the gospel, a genuine love that at its core is resting on the foundation of truth. John's love for Gaius isn't rooted in what he thinks about Gaius' personality, his sense of humor, his bank account, how many Twitter followers he has. His love for him is an outworking of the truth of the gospel. So verse 1 says, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. On the surface, at a quick reading of this, John's just saying that it's him writing the letter. Hey, it's me. And I'm writing to Gaius. That's it. But if we go a little bit deeper, we can see that John is telling of his own authority and responsibility for the church by calling himself an elder, and he's speaking of his love for truth, his love of the gospel, which then compels and fuels his love for Gaius. Let's keep going. Verse 2, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. So he begins by saying beloved again, and who's he referring to? Gaius. Why does he say beloved again? Didn't he just say it? Right. If you think about this letter as being an actual letter that you might write, meaning you get a piece of paper, and you write a letter, and you fold it in thirds, and you stick it in an envelope, and you put a stamp on there, and you write the address, and you stick it in the mailbox, and some of you are like, a mailbox? What is that? Okay? It's something we used to do. But if you were to do it, there would be something you'd write on the outside. Who it's for, where it's going who it's from. And then on the inside, you would actually address the person. So verse one is kind of like what you might put on the outside of the envelope, verses two and on are what would be on the inside of the envelope. So he says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. While he likely would have indeed been praying for Gaius, this is more of a convention of the letter writing, right? To say that I pray for you is something that's super common and normal. It would be like you or I saying goodbye to one another. When we get together and hang out, it's time for me to get in my car and go home. You're like, man, finally, Carl's leaving. And right when that happens, and I say, all right, goodbye, goodbye is really a shortening of God be with you. And that's not necessarily what I mean when I say goodbye, although for both believers, I certainly do hope that. But in a similar way, to say I pray for you in these ways is a real common way to write a letter. So he says, I pray what? That all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Let's look at all may go well with you. John is simply saying that he hopes and prays that the circumstances of Gaius' life are going well. He's saying, I pray you're doing well. Other translations will take this thing, this all may go well, and translate it into that you may prosper, right? And then our prosperity gospel buddies will take this verse and hold it up and say, see, see, I told you, if you're good with God, you will prosper, your health and your wealth will be awesome, right? Televangelists and people like our good buddy down at Lakewood Church in Houston, they'll use this text as an evidence that God's plan is to have you prosper financially and physically. All you got to do is have enough faith. All you got to do is get right with God. If it's good with your soul, if you're right with God, according to this text, then it will go well with your wallet. If you're good with God, then it will go well with your physical health. Well, that's rubbish. These are not the promises of God. That's not what's being taught in this text, but I do want to take a quick look at what the Bible actually teaches on this subject. John 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. First Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostures go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Luke 14, verse 27 Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange is happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So clearly. The promise that we have is that in the now, before Christ's return, it's going to be difficult for Christians. There's going to be sufferings. There are going to be persecutions. In the end, eternally, all who have been adopted into the family of God will indeed prosper for all eternity as we celebrate and rejoice our conquering King, Jesus the Christ. That is our eternal reality. But temporally, now, here, in this life, there's hardship, there's sorrow, there's difficulty. The prosperity gospel is a wicked lie from Satan, and the Bible does not teach it. And neither is that what John is teaching here. He's merely saying to Gaius, I hope things are going well with you. Okay, one last point before I get off my soapbox about the prosperity gospel. John only says that he's praying for these things. He's praying that it goes well with Gaius. He's praying that he's prospering. And there is a chasm of difference between saying, I pray that this is true for you, and saying, God promises this is going to happen if you just love him enough. Then he says that he prays that you may be in good health. He's not suggesting that somehow Gaius is or has been weak or ill or something. Again, it's just a normal way to greet someone in this style. It's a normal way to greet someone in a letter you might write today, especially if it's someone you haven't been in contact with a while. in a while. Right? I text Jeff Ashley almost every day. And so I don't start off my text, hey, Jeff, I hope the text finds you well and you're in good health. Anyway, are we having that meeting tomorrow? Right? Because if you talk to somebody all the time, then you don't need to greet them that way. But if you haven't talked to somebody in a while, you might indeed say that. You might write me a, an email. Dear Carl, I hope this email finds you well and that the Rona hasn't gotten you yet. Anyway, I was want to see if I could borrow your French horn. I got a buddy who's uh, going to be doing a haunted house in October and he's looking for a good way to scare people. Mm-hmm. Telling someone that you hope that they're well, physically and otherwise, is just a normal way to greet someone. And then he says, as it goes well with your soul. So after John expresses this hope and this prayer for Gaius' health and his circumstantial well-being, he then makes a comparison to Gaius's spiritual health. He's essentially saying, I hope all of your temporal circumstances are as good as your spiritual circumstances. John knows of Gaius' faith, he knows of Gaius' love for his Christian brothers, as we'll see shortly, and he's saying, your soul is set in Christ. You have put your hope in him, I am glad to see that. I hope that the way your life is going circumstantially matches up with that. So verse 2 says, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. On the surface, quick reading of this verse, greetings, brother. Hope you're good, right? But if we go a little bit deeper, we see that John knows of Gaius' faith, knows that he's a believer and that therefore his soul is secure in Christ. He's been elected by God, justified by God, adopted by God. He's being sanctified by God. John has confidence in this truth about Gaius and he hopes that Gaius' circumstantial life is well just as his spiritual life is well. Verse three for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. So he begins by saying, for I rejoiced greatly. Again, this is a really common convention of letter writing in this Hellenistic style. But it clearly means more than that, as we'll see when we get to verse four. He says, for I rejoiced greatly. When? When the brothers came. John's saying he's received reports from others who have interacted with Gaius, likely Christians who went to visit and they were shown hospitality, they were cared for, they were loved, they were welcomed when they visited his town. And what did they do? They testified to your truth. Now, we might see this phrase, your truth, and think of this postmodern idea of relative truth. We well, Think of Oprah. Your truth is your truth, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. That is not what John is doing. He's not relativizing truth here. If you want to know more about that thing, if you want to know more about logical thought, absolute truth, things like that, I would encourage you to listen to our theological equipping class we did back in January called A Theology of Truth. But here in verse 3, when John says, the brothers came and testified to your truth, he's just saying something like, they testified to the truth about you. And then he says, as indeed you are walking in the truth. This is just another affirmation that Gaius is a fellow believer, he's a faithful servant of Christ, he's saying that these reports he's getting about Gaius are confirmation that John is right about Gaius and his status with God. We've seen this same sentiment before in 2 John. Verse four of 2 John reads, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. John is simply saying his heart rejoices when he sees other believers walking in faithfulness and obedience to God in these three ways, these three truth areas we talked about. Holding to sound doctrine, believing the gospel, being indwelt by the Spirit, and then therefore walking by the Spirit, walking in truth. Verse four. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He says, I have no greater joy. The joy of hearing of of Gaius' faithfulness is kind of now being generalized by John to all of those that are under John's care that he's heard good reports about. And he's saying it's a joy to hear of people hearing and believing and walking in the truth. In fact, he doesn't just say that it's good to hear about it. He says there is no greater joy for him. That's a really strong contrast between what he was talking about in First and Second John as he was warning and exhorting the church to be careful about false teachers. There's this great elation and joy in the heart of John when he sees someone walking in righteousness, walking in obedience, being faithful, and there's this great trepidation and concern when he sees those who are swayed by the teachings of false teachers. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He has heard the reports of this faithfulness, and then he talks about how his children are walking in the truth. What does he mean by my children? Well, he's not talking about his biological children nor is he talking about children in the way that Paul talks about children, all right? Paul mentions spiritual children and things like this in like 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Philippians. And he means those that he has discipled personally, those that he has shared the gospel with, those that he has walked through the story of the scriptures and helped them to see who God is and what he's doing and what he's done. Now John is being a little more broad. He's being a little more general for all the people that are under his oversight. And speaking of children and speaking of parents, happy Father's Day. Men, if you're in here and you have kids, man, we pray and hope that you are finding great joy in raising your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We love you. And as a demonstration of that love. We have for each of you a charcoal grill and a set of snow tires in the lobby. If you'll just see a deacon right after this, that is not true. What you're going to get is we love you. Let's keep going. John is drawing this analogy between the Christians under his care and the realities of having actual children. Those of you who have kids know this. Those of you that don't probably have seen it. Parents freak out when their kids do something new. He's crawling. Boop, 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 boop. You guys, he's crawling. He's crawling. Let me get a video send, and you get it, and you're like, I don't know. He's like kicking his legs. And then he kind of scoots forward an inch by accident. I don't know if that's crawling. It's crawling, Carl. Hush. It's crawling. We're partying. Right? Or crawling or walking or talking or going to the bathroom by themselves. Yes. Right? These kinds of milestones when our kids achieve them, we get excited. We throw parties. We tell everyone. It's amazing. Because those things are examples of our children learning the truth about something. Adopting it into their own lives, holding to it, and we want to throw a party, and why not? It's great, it is genuinely a joy to see your kids growing and developing. You want to celebrate, you want to tell others about it. And if we get that excited about some kid kicking their legs and accidentally scooting forward a half an inch, how much more joy should there be over someone who repents of their sin and receives this gift of faith and walks in faithfulness and bears fruit of the Spirit? That's the kind of joy that John is speaking of when he says walking in the truth, being faithful, being obedient to the scriptures, bearing the fruit of the spirit. So here at the end of this simple greeting of this letter, John is giving us a little insight into what brings him the greatest joy. And it isn't health. He mentioned health. He says, man, I pray that you're not sick. I pray you're doing great. Anyway, I got other things to talk about. It isn't wealth. He doesn't talk about money at all. It isn't circumstantial comfort, although he does pray that things are going well with Gaius. It isn't even the news of new converts to Christianity, right? Celebrating conversion, getting excited when a new believer is baptized, those things are good and right. But there are indeed many who profess faith and get in the water and then demonstrate themselves to be unbelievers down the road. There's something else that John is talking about that brings him this greatest joy. And what is it? What is this thing that John is so excited about? Discipleship. John is commenting on the notion that Gaius has been taught and trained in the truth, and because he's been redeemed and rescued by God, he now, by the Spirit, is now walking in that truth. He's bearing fruit. Gaius has been discipled into an understanding of the kingdom of God. And that Christians are called to love one another sacrificially and joyfully. And that's exactly what Gaius has been doing. And reports of that have been coming back to John. And he is saying he has no greater joy than to hear of these things. We see this kind of thing on staff all the time. We will hear of a conversation that a member of the church has with someone, we will see a conversation that a member of the church has with someone on Facebook. And they handle a really difficult, controversial subject with grace and with love and with mercy and with patience. And they demonstrate this love for others in their speech and their conversations over things that could be really hot-button topics. And when we see those things, we take little screenshots of them and we send them to each other. Look what so-and-so said. What a joy to see them growing in their faith. We might even reach out to that member and say, I saw the conversation you had on Facebook. And they're like, oh, really? Which one? You're like, no, no, the one where you were great. (laughs) They're like, yes, right? Because it is a joy to see believers walking in the truth. When our oldest son, Taylor, our only son, Taylor, was about four, five, something like this, he was in the preschool ministry at our church, in his classroom, doing his thing, and the service ended, and I'm standing in the lobby visiting with someone, and the woman that was in charge of the preschool ministry brings him out. To me in the lobby, and he has tears streaming down his face. I think, oh no! Hey, what's up, buddy? (laughs) He's just crying. He's so he's so distraught he can barely speak. And he holds out his hand, and there's this little toy car in his hand. I I took this. I said, I don't understand. And I looked up at the woman. She said, the toy belongs to the church. He stuck it in his pocket and was intending to take it home. And then he felt convicted, and he came back and told me and apologized. I was like, what? Now my son is crying. I want to console him and I want to help him. But in my heart, I'm so excited. There's so much joy because I'm seeing what I hope are these first fruits of the conviction of sin, that this is the spirit working in my son and giving him an understanding of what the truth is and that he isn't holding to it in that moment. And then he should apologize and he should repent. and, And so I'm excited That's the kind of joy John is talking about. That's what John is saying. It brings me no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. So verses three and four read, for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So on the surface, John is just saying, I was glad to hear you're being faithful. Hearing about things like that give me great joy. That's it. But if we dig a little deeper, John is saying his deepest joy is to see discipleship in action. To hear and to know that Christians are being faithful is of higher importance to John than physical health, circumstantial comforts, and on and on we could go. So what's the point? What's the point of this text this morning? In these opening four verses of 3 John, this greeting of this letter, well, there are lots of ways this text could be looked at. And that's one of the beautiful things about scripture. You literally can't get to the bottom of it. Right? There is an inexhaustible fountain of knowledge and truth and joy that can be found by studying God's word. And here we are spending 35, 45 minutes looking at these verses. Right? These verses that we might tend to skip over when we read our Bibles. But when I'm finished with this sermon, we will have just barely scratched the surface of what could be gleaned from this text. But for the sake of time, there's two main ways that I want us to look at this. The first is this normal, traditional, superficial, if you will, kind of reading of this text. John's just opening up his letter in a standard format for letter writing at the time. He's saying, hey, guys, it's me, John. Hope you're doing well. Heard you've been faithful. Sweet. Right? It gets me so excited to hear about it. In fact, I get real excited when I hear about anybody doing that. But second, this text is this... strong reminder for us that there is this beautiful connection between truth and love, right? How believers love one another by holding to the truth in these three ways, right? Believing sound doctrine, believing in the gospel, being indwelt by the spirit, and then walking by the spirit. When we hold to that sound doctrine and we avoid these false teachers that we've been warned about by John and first and second John, we are embracing that love and that truth, When we believe the gospel of the kingdom, this good news that the gracious and merciful God of the universe, this triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, is restoring this sin-scarred world, bringing it back to rights through the life, and death, and burial, and resurrection, and coming return of His Son, Jesus. When we believe that, we're embracing this love and truth that John speaks of. When we walk by the Spirit, When we love God and love his word, when we love one another, we are clinging to and embracing this truth and love that he speaks of. And that's what John's pointing us to in just this simple greeting of this letter. Like John, seeing and hearing of our brothers and sisters growing in Christ, growing in the truth, walking in the truth should bring us joy. Seeing others shaped into the image of Christ, believing the gospel, believing the good news of the kingdom, that should bring us joy. Seeing others discipled into a greater understanding of the truth should give us the greatest joy. So how then are we doing this? How are we investing in others, helping them to have a better understanding of the truth and grow as disciples? How are we sharing that good news? Do you have relationships where you confess sin, where you study, discuss the scriptures, where you pray together, where you encourage one another? Are there people who invest in your life, in your growth as a disciple? Are there people discipling you? Are there people who, if we ask them that question, they would give your name as an answer? Are you discipling others? Are there people in your life that are lost? that you're forming relationships with, with an eye towards sharing the gospel, with the hope that God might rescue and redeem them. These are not merely things we should do because we just want to be obedient, although that is certainly true as well. We are indeed commanded to make disciples, to share the gospel. John's helping us to see that if we are not seeing others grow in the truth, if we're not bearing witness to and participating in the discipleship of others, then we're missing out. We're missing out on joy. There is great joy to be had in seeing and hearing of another's growth in Christ and another's walking in the truth. According to this text, observing the Holy Spirit at work in others will bring us, according to John, no greater joy. So here's my question for you this morning. Are you chasing that joy? Are you looking for and celebrating the places where you see those around you being faithful and walking in the truth? Do you celebrate the growth that you see in your spouse, in your kids, in your friends, people in your community groups? Are you telling them that it encourages you? Are you saying to them in a text, in a conversation, in a phone call, in an email, are you saying, I see Christ in you and it encourages me? Are you intentionally making disciples of one another? Or are you just too busy with your life and your activities that you're missing? it? perhaps you're too distracted, right, by your own life, your own work, your job, your career goals, your phone, your social media presence, the news, the cultural climate that we're in, the fears and anxieties that come from some of those things, right? Are you doing all those things and missing that your brothers and sisters in Christ are looking more like Jesus today than they did yesterday. Distractions abound in our culture, right? News, current events, social media, everybody telling us what they think. And for some reason we think we've got to know what everybody else thinks. And we miss what's happening right around us. We miss seeing our brothers and sisters growing. So I'd like us to close today by reading a passage from Hebrews chapter 10. This passage usually is used to help Christians remember, hey, don't skip church. You need to come to church, which is true. But I want us to see more than that there this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Church, let's strive together to be a people who, like John, celebrate and rejoice in what God is doing in our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your love for us, for your mercy to us, for your grace to us in Christ. And so, as we read this text, we pray that you'll strengthen us, you'll encourage us, you'll help us to see and to celebrate and rejoice that we might not miss the joy that is to be had by just bearing witness to the faithfulness that you produce by your Spirit in your children. And so we thank you that you are a good God, that you give good gifts to your children, that you are faithful, you're abounding in steadfast love. And so we pray that the busyness of our lives, that the complacency we might feel towards the truth of your word, because we're busy, would be lost today. But instead, it would be replaced by an eagerness to see you at work in your people a readiness to celebrate and rejoice in all that You've done. We thank You for Your love for us. We thank You for Your mercy, for Your grace. We thank You for Your Word. And most of all, we thank You for Your Son. It is by His blood that we have been rescued and redeemed. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.